0: Chapter Twelve of the First Violin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The First Violin by Jessie Fothergill. Chapter Twelve, Prince Eugen der Edelrifter It was the evening of the Hauptprobe, a fine moonlit night in the middle of May, a month since I had come to Elberthal, and it seemed so much, so very much more. To my astonishment, and far from agreeable astonishment, Anna Sartorius informed me of her intention to accompany me to the Prober. I put objections in her way as well as I knew how, and said I did not think outsiders were admitted. She laughed, and said, That is too funny that you should instruct me in such things. Why, I have a ticket to all the Proben, as any one can have. Who chooses to pay two tellers at the Sasse? I have a mind to hear this. They say the orchestra are going to rebel against von Francius. And I am going to the concert tomorrow, too. One cannot hear too much of such fine music. And when one's friend sings, too. What friend of yours is going to sing? I inquired coldly. Why, you, you allerliebste kleine Engel said she in a tone of familiarity to which i strongly objected i could say no more against her going but certainly displayed no enthusiastic desire for her company the probe we found was to be in the great salle it was half lighted and there were perhaps some fifty people holders of probe tickets seated in the parquet you are going to sing well to-night said von francius as he handed me up the steps for my sake, and for your own, nicht wahr?' "'I will try,' said I, looking round the great orchestra, and seeing how full it was, so many fresh faces, both in chorus and orchestra. And as I looked, I saw Corisier come in by the little door at the top of the orchestra steps, and descend to his place. His face was clouded, very clouded. I had never seen him look thus before. He had no smile for those who greeted him. As he took his place beside Helfen, and the latter asked him some question, he stared absently at him, then answered with a look of absence and weariness. Here, Corvoisier,' said von Francis, and I, being near, heard the whole dialogue. You always allow yourself to be waited for. Courvoisier glanced up. I, with a new sudden interest, watched the behaviour of the two men, "'In the face of von Francius, I thought to discover dislike, contempt.' "'I beg your pardon. I was detained,' answered Courvoisier composedly. "'It is unfortunate that you should be so often detained at the time when your work should be beginning.' Unmoved and unchanging, Courvoisier heard and submitted to the words, and to the tone in which they were spoken. Sarcastic, sneering, and unbelieving. "'Now we will begin.' pursued von francius with a disagreeable smile as he rapped with his baton upon the rail i looked at courvoisier looked at his friend Friedhelm melvin the former was sitting as quietly as possible rather pale and with the same clouded look but not deeper than before the latter was flushed and eyed von francius with no friendly glance there seemed a kind of slumbering storm in the air there was none of the lively discussion usual at the proben corvoisier first of the first violins and from whom all the others seemed to take their tone sat silent grave and still von francius though quiet was biting i felt afraid of him something must have happened to put him into that evil mood my part did not come until late in the second part of the oratorio i had almost forgotten that i was to sing at all and was watching von Francius, and listening to his sharp speeches. I remembered what Anna Sartorius had said in describing this hoped to me. It was all just as she had said. He was severe. His speeches roused the phlegmatic blood, set the professional instrumentalists laughing at their amateur co-operators, but provoked no reply or resentment. It was extraordinary the effect of this man's will upon those he had to do with upon women in particular. There was one haughty-looking blonde, a Swede, tall, majestic, with long yellow curls, and a face full of pride and high temper, who gave herself decided airs, and trusted to her beauty and insolence to carry off certain radical defects of harshness of voice and want of ear. I never forgot how she stared me down from head to foot on the occasion of my first appearance alone as if to say, "'What do you want here?' It was in vain that she looked haughty and handsome. Addressing her as Fräulein Hülström, von Francius gave her a sharp lecture, and imitated the effect of her voice, in a particularly soft passage, with ludicrous accuracy. The rest of the chorus was tittering audibly. The musicians, with the exception of Corvoisier and his friend, nudging each other and smiling, she bridled haughtily, flashed a furious glance at her mentor, grew crimson, received a sarcastic smile which baffled her, and subsided again. So it was with them all. His blame was plentiful, his praise so rare as to be almost an unknown quantity. His chorus and orchestra were famed for the minute perfection and precision of their play and singing. Perhaps the performance lacked something else, passion, colour von francius at that time at least was no genius though his talent his power and his method were undeniably great he was however not popular not the herald the beloved leader of his people it was tonight that i was first shown how all was not smooth for him that in this art union there were splits little rifts within the lute which should they extend might literally in the end make the music mute i heard whispers around me herr von Francius is angry nicht wahr herr courvoisier looks angry too yes he does there will be an open quarrel there soon i think so they are both clever one should be less clever than the other they are so opposed yes they say courvoisier has a party of his own and that all the orchestra are on his side so in accents of curiosity and astonishment ja that e. Von francis does not mind he will see herr courvoisier in his place etc etc without end all which excited me much as the first glimpse into the affairs of those about whom we think much and know little a form of life, well known to women in general, always does interest us. These things made me forget to be nervous or anxious. I saw myself now as part of the whole, a unit in the sum of a life which interested me. Von Francius gave me a sign of approval when I had finished, but it was a mechanical one. He was thinking of other things. The puba was over. I walked slowly down the room, looking for Anna Sartorius more out of politeness than because I wished for her company. I was relieved to find that she had already gone, probably not finding all the entertainment she expected, and I was able, with a good conscience, to take my way home alone. My way home? Not yet. I was to live through something before I could take my way home. I went out of the large sal, through the long veranda, into the street a flood of moonlight silvered it there was a laughing chattering crowd about me all the chorus men and girls going to their homes or their lodgings in ones or twos or in large cheerful groups almost opposite the ton was a tall house one of a row and of this house the lowest floor was used as a shop for antiquities curiosities and a thousand odds and ends useful or beautiful to artists costumes suits of armor old china anything and everything the window was yet lighted as I paused for a moment before taking my homeward way I saw two men cross the moonlit street and go in at the open door of the shop one was Courvoisier. in The other I thought to recognize Friedhelm helfen, but was not quite sure about it They did not go into the shop as I saw by the bright large lamp that burned within, but along the passage and up the stairs. I followed them, resolutely beating down shyness, unwillingness, timidity. My reluctant steps took me to the window of the antiquity shop, and I stood looking in before I could make up my mind to enter. Bits of rococo ware stood in the window, maholika jugs, chased metal, dishes and bowls, bits of renaissance work, tapestry, carpet, a helm with the visor up, gaping at me, as if tired of being there. I slowly drew my purse from my pocket, put together three dollars and a ten groschen piece, and with lingering unwilling steps entered the shop. A pretty young woman in a quaint dress, which somehow harmonized with the place, came forward. She looked at me, as if wondering what I could possibly want my very agitation gave calmness to my voice as i inquired does herr courvoisier a musicer live here yahoo ja, well, answered the young woman with a look of still greater surprise on the third etage straight upstairs the name is on the door i turned away and walked slowly up the steep wooden uncarpeted staircase on the first landing a door opened at the sound of my footsteps and a head was popped out a rough fuzzy head with a pale eager-looking face under the bush of hair ugh said the owner of this amiable visage and shut the door with a bang i looked at the plate upon it it bore the legend "Hermann d'unse to the second etage another door another plate bernhard klop mahler the house seemed to be a resort of artists there was a lamp burning on each landing, and now at last, with breath and heart alike failing, I ascended the last flight of stairs, and found myself upon the highest étage before another door, on which was roughly painted up, Eugen Corvoisier. I looked at it, with my heart beating suffocatingly. Someone had scribbled in red chalk beneath the Christian name, Prince Eugen der Edelrichter. Had it been done in jest or earnest, I wondered, and then knocked, such a knock! I opened the door, and stepped into a large, long, low room. On the table, in the centre, burned a lamp, and sitting there, with the light falling upon his earnest young face, was Helfen, the violinist, and near to him sat Courvoisier, with a child upon his knee a little lad with immense dark eyes tumbled black hair and flushed just awakened face he was clad in his night-dress and a little red dressing-gown and looked like a spot of almost feverish quite tropic brightness in contrast with the grave pale face which bent over him courvoisier held the two delicate little hands in one of his own and was looking down with love unutterable upon the beautiful, dazzling child-face. Despite the different complexion, and a different style of feature too, there was so great a likeness in the two faces, partly in the broad, noble brow, as to leave no doubt of the relationship. My musician and the boy were father and son. Corvizier looked up as I came in. For one half-moment there leaped into his eyes a look of surprise and of something more if it had lasted a second longer i could have sworn it was welcome then it was gone he rose turned the child over to helfen saying one moment with then turned to me as to some stranger who had come on an errand as yet unknown to him and did not speak the little one, from Helfin's knee, stared at me with large, solemn eyes, and Helfin himself looked scarcely less impressed. I have no doubt I looked frightened. I felt so. Frightened out of my senses, I came tremulously forward, and, offering my pieces of silver, said in the smallest voice which I had ever used, I have come to pay my debt. I did not know where you lived, or I should have done it long before he made no motion to take the money but said i almost started so altered was the voice from that of my frank companion at cologne to an icy coldness of ceremony Mein frulein i do not understand you you the things you paid for do you not remember me remember a lady who has intimated that she wishes me to forget her no i do not what a horribly complicated revenge, thought I, as I said ever lower and lower, more and more shamefacedly, while the young violinist sat with the child on his knee, and his soft brown eyes staring at me in wonder. I think you must remember, you helped me at Cologne, and you paid for my ticket to Elberthal, and for something that I ate at the hotel. You told me that was what I owed you. I again tendered the money, again he made no effort to receive it, but said, "'I am sorry that I do not understand to what you refer. I only know that it is impossible that I could ever have told you you owed me three dollars or three anything, or that there could, under any circumstances, be any question of money between you and me. Suppose we consider the topic at an end?' Such a voice of ice and such a manner to chill the boldest heart I had never yet encountered. The cool, unspeakable disdain cut me to the quick. "'You have no right to refuse the money,' said I desperately. "'You have no right to insult me by—by—' by. An appropriate peroration refused itself. Again the sweet, proud, courteous smile, not only courteous, but curtly. Again the icy little bow of the head— which would have done credit to a prince in displeasure and which yet had the deference due from a gentleman to a lady you will excuse the semblance of rudeness which may appear if i say that if you unfortunately are not of a very decided disposition i am it is impossible that i should ever have the slightest intercourse with a lady who has once unequivocally refused my acquaintance the lady may honour me by changing her mind i am sorry that i cannot respond i do not change my mind you must let us part on equal terms i reiterated it is unjust yourself closed all possibility of the faintest attempt at further acquaintance mein Fräulein. the matter is at an end herr courvoisier i at an end he repeated calmly gently looking at me as he had often looked at me since the night of loecran with a glance that baffled and chilled me i wish to apologize for what he inquired with the faintest possible look of indifferent surprise for my rudeness my surprise i you refer to one evening at the opera you exercised your privilege as a lady of closing an acquaintance which you did not wish to renew i now exercise mine as a gentleman of saying that i choose to abide by that decision now and always i was surprised despite my own apologetic frame of mind i was surprised at his hardness at his narrowness and ungenerosity which could so determinately shut the door in the face of an humble penitent like me he must see how i had repented the stupid slip i had made he must see how i desired to atone for it it was not a slip of the kind one would name irreparable and yet he behaved to me as if i had committed a crime froze me with looks and words was he so self-conscious and so vain that he could not get over the small slight to his self-consequence committed in haste and confusion by an ignorant girl even then even in that moment i asked myself these questions my astonishment being almost as great as my pain for it was the very reverse the very opposite of what i had pictured to myself once let me see him and speak to him i had said to myself and it would be all right every element of his face every tone of his voice bespoke a frank generous nature one that could forgive alas and alas this was the truth he had come to the door he stood by it now holding it open looking at me so courteously so deferentially with the manner of one who had been a gentleman and lived with gentlemen all his life but in a way which at the same time ordered me out as plainly as possible I could no longer stand under the chilling glance, nor endure the cool, polished contempt of the manner. I behaved by no means heroically, neither flung my head back, nor muttered any defiance, nor in any way proved myself a person of spirit. All I could do was to look appealingly into his face, to search the bright, steady eyes, without finding in them any hint of softening or relenting will you not take it please i asked in a quivering voice and with trembling lips impossible mein frulein with the same chilly little bow as before struggling to repress my tears i said no more but passed out cut to the heart the door was closed gently behind me i felt as if it had closed upon a bright belief of my youth I leaned for a moment against the passage wall, and pressed my hands against my eyes. From within came the sound of a child's voice, "'Mein father!' and the soft, deep murmur of Eugen's answer. Then I went downstairs and into the open street. That hated, hateful, three taler den Groschen was still clasped in my hand. What was I to do with it? Throw it into the Rhine, and wash it away for Give it to someone in need? fling it into the gutter send it to him by post i dismissed that idea for what it was worth no i would obey his prohibition i would keep it those very coins and when i felt inclined to be proud and conceited about anything on my own account or disposed to put down superhuman charms to the account of others i would go and look at them and they would preach me eloquent sermons as i went into the house up the stairs to my room the front door opened again, and Anna Sartorius overtook me. "'I thought you had left the probe,' said I, staring at her. "'So I had, Herzen, said she, with her usual ambiguous mocking laugh. "'But I was not compelled to come home like a good little girl, "'the moment I came out of the Tornhade. "'I have been visiting a friend. "'But where have you been? "'For the probe must have been over for some time.' we heard the people go past indeed some of them were staying in the house where i was did you take a walk in the moonlight good night said i too weary and too indifferent even to answer her it must have been a very tiring walk you seem weary quite a mutant, said she mockingly and i made no answer i'll a the dismal thing after all she called out to me from the top of the stairs from my inmost heart I agreed with her. End of chapter 12